you know, I had a whole like photo album in my head of horrible images from the moment of impact to blood on the road to me in the police car hearing that the child died. Welcome to every driver's worst nightmare. And welcome to Why Do I Feel? With me, Nathan Filer. This episode is all about the emotion that we call guilt. I find it curious that guilt has two related but distinct meanings. It describes an emotion, but it also describes a fact. The fact of having committed an offence or a crime. We can be guilty without necessarily feeling any guilt. But we can also feel guilt without being guilty. My story begins in 1977 when I was a 22-year-old graduate student living in a little rural town in Ohio. And I was uh, driving from the nearby city of Cincinnati back to my student apartment on a beautiful spring day. It was June. The schools had recently let out for the summer. Uh, It was just gorgeous outside, and I was looking forward to getting home and jumping into a swimming pool and just enjoying the start of summer. And when I was about 15 minutes away from home, uh, I saw out of the corner of my eye a figure running into the road. I slammed on my brakes. I tried to swerve, but I was not able to avoid the collision. And I hit a young child. Uh, He flew up into the air. And I have that image indelibly imprinted in my brain. But I've lost a few minutes after that. I know that I pulled over and ran across the road, but I don't remember doing any of that. And the next thing I knew, I was hiding behind a bush, kind of screaming. I was just in a, in a complete panic. I was so scared. This is Marianne Jacoby Gray. Her story of guilt, both its cruelty, but also its potentially transformative power, feels so important. We're going to spend the whole episode with her. I was so scared and I was so upset. But I kind of returned to myself And I immediately, at that point, was able to see that the child was being attended to. So, and a a knot of people from the little neighborhood uh, came out and were um, watching and trying to help. It turned out I hit this child in front of his house and I watched as his mother ran out screaming the child's name, which was Brian, and trying to run to him while neighbors held her back. 
it took the police about, I think, a half hour to come because it was a fairly remote area. And I waited until the child had been um, put into the back of a police car because I was faster than waiting for an ambulance and taken away. And then I came forward and said, you know, it was me, it was me, I did this. Who did you, um, I mean, I'm just so, <laughs> to try to put myself in your position, I can actually feel myself welling up a little bit. Yes. Who did you, um, who, who, who did you say that, who did you say that to? The police officer, um, who was then able to begin an investigation. So um, there were several officers on the scene, of course. They had me wait in the back of a police car. For a while, I was alone. For a while, there was a young, I think, intern, but a young officer in the front seat who did not talk to me. Nobody talked to me. And eventually, after what I what felt like a few hours, one of the officers returned to the car and told me that the boy had died. And, of course, I'd been sitting in the car, even though I'm not very religious, praying with everything with all the fervor I had to let this child live and let him be okay. Uh, but I knew it was bad. So I was, um, I was devastated. And I, I just remember kind of bending over and trying, crying, but trying really hard to stop crying because I was, the perpetrator. I had done this. I had killed this child. Uh, after a few hours, a neighbor, uh, uh, one of, this made a huge difference. I think in my life, really, a neighbor came out of one of the houses and convinced the police to let me wait in her home instead of in the back of a police car. So I was able to go in and drink some water and use the bathroom. And her kindness to me had such an impact. I, I tear up about that today more than anything else because it, it made such a difference that she didn't hate me. She didn't want revenge. She understood that the child had run in front of my car Um and she was just incredibly nice. She also let me use her phone when when the police were done with their investigation. They said to me, okay, you know, we're done. Can you drive home now? I was like, no, no, there's no way I could drive home. And so she let me use her telephone. That was pre-cell phone era, of course, to call. Um, actually, I called a professor and he came and uh, picked me up and stayed with me for a few hours. It was, well, 1977 before cell phones. I was sort of thinking, of course, today there would be a pretty reasonable chance that someone would be on their phone or doing something like that whilst, whilst driving. But as, as, you've de as you've described it to me, um, there was no, no fault on your part and no one was suggesting there was any fault on, on your part. Is that right? I wasn't speeding. I was just following the traffic. I wasn't um, 
playing with the radio or fumbling in my handbag or really, I was just driving. I just, he, he really, the police call this a dart out and a child darted out and I just wasn't able to avoid hitting him. What happened next? Um, I, I, I had to call my parents, which was uh, frightening and sad, and I was already just so guilty. The car, I was only 22. The car was my father's car that he was letting me use. Um, and I knew that they would be so upset and devastated, you know, worried about me, but of course, grieving for the family that just lost their child. So I, I made that horrible phone call and um, stayed with a friend that night. I don't remember much about that. And went home the next day and was kind of alone in my apartment. Marianne was in the process of moving, leaving her current university and going to a new one in Cincinnati to complete a master's degree. So I was in the process of saying goodbye to my friends at the university and in the process of making new friends in the city. But um, that meant that at the time of this accident, I was pretty much without friends I could count on, many friends I could count on. It's not true there wasn't anybody, but my support system was thin. My my father flew from New York, uh, where he lived, to um, Ohio the very next day. And he dealt with a whole slew of logistical issues. My car had to get to a body shop. He had to talk to the insurance agent. He uh, retained a lawyer and had me meet with a lawyer. He also made a condolence call uh, to the family of the child, which... You know, I think back on that and I can't imagine how painful that must have been for all of them. But he did it. So he was really helpful. But he was not helpful in terms of the emotional impact. It just wasn't something he knew how to do or was comfortable with. So he left after a day and... All the logistics were taken care of, for which I'm eternally grateful. But the emotional side of this, the psychological consequences, were mine to deal with essentially alone. And can you and describe what those, you know, what those emotions were? What, what, what were your predominant feelings at that time that you were sitting there with on your own? So looking back... I know I had very severe trauma symptoms. I couldn't concentrate on anything. I had intrusive images, some flashbacks. Um, I wasn't sleeping well. I was emotionally, you know, full of grief and fear. And my guilt was overwhelming, which today 
we would uh, consider not so much trauma-related as what we call moral injury. Because even though I didn't break the law or I wasn't negligent or reckless in my driving behavior, I was the agent of an eight-year-old boy's death, um, a child who was exuberant and enjoying the spring and just had a momentary lapse of attention. And I was the one who killed him. And it didn't matter to me that it wasn't my fault. I still did it. So I thought about that all the time. A few days after the accident, I was just alone most of this time. I, I, I call it, I, I had something that I call today an auditory hallucination. And I heard a voice like a Old Testament God from some cheesy movie or something say, you have taken a child from his mother and your punishment is that you can never have children now. And that just, I don't know what I was doing, but it stopped me in my tracks. I never did have children, which is probably the single most significant effect of the crash on my life. Because prior to that, it, it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have dreamed of not having children. It was just who I was. I wonder if we could go, go, go back a, go back a step. Of um, course. So your father came and he and he offered that kind of really practical support. Doing what dads dads need to do. We need some practical support from our dads sometimes, <laughs> don't we? Especially at a time like especially at a time like that. I'm sure. Um, but but didn't offer you or didn't know how to offer you um, the 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 emotional support that you needed and you were moving you you were physically moving and you were moving between friendship groups so you perhaps had fewer people around you than you you ordinarily would but i'm interested Correct. in what the people who were around you were saying i'm i'm just sort of thinking you know if i were your friend at that at, at that time um maybe i would be trying to really press upon you as best i could that but it but it wasn't your fault it wasn't it wasn't your you know this is a terrible thing that happened but it but but it wasn't your fault were, were you hearing that from people yes yes that's a really good question nathan i i was hearing that from everybody in addition uh the adults around me, professors, parents, relatives, um, a therapist that I consulted a few times, all said to me, look, this is a terrible tragedy. Of course you're sad. Of course you're upset. But it wasn't your fault. You have your whole life ahead of you. So you need to just move on. You need to leave this behind and move on. And that sounded like good advice to me. I, I did have plans. I did have things I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to get derailed. So I tried to move on. And to some degree, it probably looked like I was doing a good job with that. But I wasn't. I was consumed with uh, both the trauma and the moral component of what happened. It was 
in my head, I would say, you know, 75% of my waking hours and a good part of my sleeping hours as well. Um, but I only talked about it, you know, very, very little. And so when people would ask me how I'm doing, I would say, oh, you know, I've, I've, I'm sad, but I'm doing a lot better. And I understand it was just one of those things. Um, but what I wasn't telling anybody was like, I would hallucinate people in the road when I tried to drive and I would slam on my brakes in traffic. So obviously that was really dangerous. So I sold my car and I think I said, oh, you know, I live in the city now. I don't really need a car. It's not very ecological. <laughs> I think I had a whole list of reasons. And I would be, you know, in a room with a bunch of people at a gathering or just my housemates. I was sharing a house with other people and there'd be some conversation and I would be sitting there, you know, nodding and smiling. But inside I would be remembering, you know, I had a whole like photo album in my head of horrible images from the moment of impact to blood on the road to me in the police car hearing that the child died uh, 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 just a whole photo album and I would be flipping through that photo album um, and not really present for the conversation or for other people um, I also dated men that were mean to me <laughs> And I had not done that before. I wonder. Um, I, I I wonder what uh, some of those people who were asking you how you were doing. Um, I, I wonder what they might have expected from you in 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 some ways. I'm thinking that um, you know, as as I said, if I were your friend, I might I might say, um, Marianne. This clearly wasn't your fault and say the things that, that, that people were saying to you and that you were hearing. Um, but, but I wonder whether also I, I would in some way expect you to feel guilty. It's such, it's such a big thing, isn't it? So like to, to, to have been involved in something like that. So, so you know, if you, if you were able to immediately take that well-meaning advice from your friends and, and go, oh, no, you're quite right. It wasn't my fault. I'll put that behind me then. Um, how people maybe would have felt about that and whether some of that guilt was, was a guilt that, that you felt you had to feel. That's another great question. There is... Um... We do expect people who inadvertently harm other people to feel badly. And if they don't, we, many of us, including me, are somewhat judgmental about that. I can't imagine someone doing what I did and not feeling guilty. I was the perpetrator in this situation, and I did not want to turn myself into a victim. Let people grieve for the boy and let people uh, save their empathy and compassion for his family. And I did not feel deserving of any of that. Were you in touch with his family at all during this time? 
the lawyer that my father retained for me thought I should go to the funeral. And I refused. That was like the one thing where I just was like, no, I'm not following your advice. It felt performative to me. It didn't feel authentic. And it felt highly intrusive that this was the opportunity for family and friends to grieve and to have me walking in there to share the grief just felt totally wrong. So as a compromise, I agreed to uh, pay a condolence call to the family. And about, I don't know, two or three weeks after after the crash, I had to wait for the body shop to fix my car. Um, the very first time I drove, I drove to that house, to, to that place. And I, I assume the lawyers or the insurance agent or somebody told the family I was coming. And Brian's mother and brother uh, were out. I'm sure that was arranged. Um, but the father was home and he was unbelievably nice to me. No, he looked, he's probably the saddest looking man I had ever seen in my life, maybe to this day. But he came out and he greeted me and he led me around. He didn't take me into the house. He took me to their back patio and invited me to sit. And, you know, I, I just expressed my sorrow and how sorry I was. And he accepted that. And then we made, I don't remember what we talked about, but we tried to make small talk for, you know, three or four minutes. And then he walked me back to my car and I left. And it was, you know, I look back on that and I say, I can't believe I did that alone. I can't believe I did that without support. Uh, but I did. And I'm fortunate that he was such a kind and good man. Time marched on in that way that it does, at least for the living. Marianne moved once again, this time to complete a doctoral degree at the University of California, Irvine, which is near the beach. And I was just uh, thrilled to leave Cincinnati, and it felt like an, a new start. It was almost exactly two years after the accident. So I moved to California. I had to buy a car. I had to drive again. That was terrifying. But I was able to throw myself into my graduate work, which I loved, and uh, succeed on that level. But I did not talk about what had happened. Nobody knew. I, I decided I, I didn't want to be the girl who had killed a child. And I had a strong sense that I needed to deal with my feelings on my own. So it had become a it, it 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 become a secret almost. It it was a secret. It was entirely a secret. And I thought, well, I must be a dangerous, bad, 
maybe even evil person and I hurt other people. So I have to be very, very, very careful all the time to never hurt anybody ever again, physically or emotionally, I might add. These secrets, this internalizing of her pain, it was taking its toll on Marianne's mental health. She was frightened and anxious most of the time. But remarkably, she pressed on, completing her PhD. She got a job at a big think tank. She met a nice guy. She got married. He didn't want children either. I never told him what happened. And I never talked with him about what happened ever. Until 2003, when there was a terrible car crash um, in Santa Monica, when an elderly man uh, in his 80s plowed his car into a farmer's market, a crowded farmer's market, and really just mowed down people. It was gruesome. About 10 people were killed and I think over 50 injured, some of them very, very seriously. And it, it was an international story. It was so horrific. A horrific accident today. Vendors were setting up for the farmer's at market. At least two people are in Saturday. the hospital after a car crashed into Ten them at a farmer's market. Ten people injured when Weller's car slammed into a farmer's market in Santa Monica. Weller panicked and mistook the car's accelerator for a brake pedal. He had 240 feet before he came uh, to the barricade of the farmer's market. Uh, that's a long way. And I, I knew people in Santa Monica. I had worked in Santa Monica. I wasn't living there at the time, but it was part of my life in Los Angeles. Uh, I've shopped in that farmer's market. So along with everybody else, I was glued to the TV just watching this. And one of the things that struck me and really hurt me was hearing people screaming that the old man was a murderer, that he had killed people intentionally, and that uh, he should be arrested for murder. Where it seemed to me, based on both my observations and my experience, that he, he did not intend to, to kill anybody. He probably should not have been driving, obviously but that this was really a, you know, a, a terrible tragedy, but not one that he intended. And the hatred being directed his way, uh, on the one hand is completely understandable, and on the other hand really hurt me because I, I identified with him in some ways. So I impulsively wrote a short piece, maybe 600 words. I was in a writing workshop at the time, and the workshop leader said, oh, you know, send this to NPR, to our national public radio. And I did, again, impulsively. And they called me, and they wanted to run it. Like most people, I'm horrified and saddened by the devastating car accident. My heart goes out to those who lost family members and friends, but unlike most people, 
My deepest sympathies lie with the driver. 25 years ago, I hit and killed an eight-year-old boy named Brian who ran in front of my car. In the moments after my car accident, as a crowd of onlookers gathered, I was scared of being attacked or killed myself. When I read that some of the shoppers at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market screamed murderer at the elderly driver, the raw terror of those moments came back to me. And so I forgive the gentleman who lost control of his car at the farmer's market. It was, after all, an accident. This is NPR, National Public Radio. Okay. You disclosed this this thing happened to him and you and for the first time in I mean, what sounds like many, many years from, you know, when decades maybe, um, you talked about the fact that you'd been in this position. So something about this accident that he'd been involved in and you were able to empathise with him perhaps in a way that you'd never quite been able to empathise with yourself. Um, but right. but, but it, brought, it brought your story out. That's, that's right. That's really well said. This ran on NPR. My husband wasn't thrilled, but once he realized I was doing it, he was very supportive. And then friends that some of whom I'd known for decades heard about this accident by listening to their radio as they were driving home. Coworkers heard about it, you know, that I was working at the University of Southern California at the time and no, nobody knew there. And so all of a sudden, it was no longer a secret. And the amazing thing, and this does not happen for everybody, was that I received an outpouring of support from people who knew me and were, you know, said that they thought it was brave of me to come forward and they were glad that I did and they were compassionate and interested. And that was so reassuring and healing. And the other thing that happened was that people started coming out of the woodwork to say, you know, this happened to my sister or this happened to my neighbor, or this happened to me even. And I had never in all those years ever talked to anybody who had unintentionally killed someone. And all of a sudden, I was starting to have conversations. And they were really powerful. It was like all of a sudden, somebody gets it, gets it in their core, in their gut, in a way that you know, a therapist can be empathic and helpful, but somebody who shares the experience, there's a different kind of connection. So that set me on a new path and a much healthier one, I'm happy to say. You, you, you shared this experience and then you were hearing from, you were hearing from people and perhaps other people who also had felt completely alone with their experiences and and uh, unable to talk about them did did you feel that was that a sort of community forming or were these just sort of isolated conversations to begin with initially they were isolated conversations and i uh thought about trying to form a support group 
but people are so spread out and many people who've had these um, crashes don't drive. So especially in Los Angeles, it, it was impractical. So ultimately I decided to develop a website and my hope was to provide information that was not available to me when I had my accident and also support and encouragement. And that's what I did. And over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, it's grown and grown and grown. And now we have a nonprofit corporation with a board and we have monthly meetings online and weekly writing sessions and uh, we're starting to do some fundraising and it's like a thing. <laughs> well, I've, I've looked at your website. I, I mean, I have it on my screen in front of me right now and it's called Accidental Impacts. What, what is, you know, extraordinary to me actually is looking elsewhere online. This does seem to be pretty much the only resource that, that I can see for people who have, have, have been in that situation of accidentally killing or seriously injuring someone. Is, is, there a lack, is there a lack of help out there? There's a near total lack of help. There are uh, no self-help books, no uh, support groups, no organizations other than accidental impacts. There's no clinical protocols for therapists to follow. There's no research. Um, there's accidental impacts and that's it, which is astounding to me, given that um, I've estimated that in the United States alone, probably 20 to 25,000 people per year unintentionally kill someone if you, most of that is car crashes, but it also includes other, other ways that we harm each other. Um, and it's not an uncommon trauma, but it's entirely neglected in the literature so that is something I'm also trying to remedy at present. Do you support people, Marianne, whose um, story is perhaps, uh, you know, even more difficult maybe for other people to understand or empathise with if, if the accident was their fault in, in some way? I don't, I don't, I'm not talking here about obviously deliberately doing it, but the many ways that we can be, we can be negligent, say, when, when driving a car. Sure. We have this epidemic of distracted driving. We have people who drive impaired, we have people who speed, run stop signs, everything from kind of gross negligence, even recklessness, to simply, you know, not seeing the stop sign, making a mistake that has fatal consequences. I do support um, anybody who unintentionally kills. I do feel that uh, part of the, I, I hate the word healing because I, I don't think it quite captures the process. I, I prefer to talk about kind of making peace with ourselves in the world, uh, but that's a mouthful. But part of the process is accountability, accepting responsibility for 
what we did, albeit inadvertently. And if there needs to be behavioral changes or consequences, accepting that with as much grace as we can muster. And most people who do this suffer terribly. And that suffering, I say, is evidence of one's humanity and caring. If we didn't care what we did, there would be no despair or distress. Um, so I encourage people, even those who made terrible mistakes, to balance accountability with compassion. And finally, the most important step, in my opinion, but one that takes, one that cannot be rushed, is doing something to make the world a better place, investing in community, providing service, um, could be creative expression, could be a spiritual practice, or you know, simply resolving to deepen one's compassion, kindness, giving nature. Um, there's so many things that all of us can do. And the point of this is not to make up for killing somebody or to even the scales. There is no way to ever make up for what we've done. It's we killed somebody. It's there's no compensating for that. But we can honor the memory of that person and everyone who suffered, those who mourn and grieve for that person and our own suffering. It's imperfect. <laughs> But it's the only way I've ever found of finding some modicum of peace. In addition, in taking these steps in a very mindful and purposeful manner, we, those of us who have suffered from trauma, regain a sense of agency that we can make good things happen in the world. And we and and the for the moral component uh, an aspect of moral injury is often social isolation withdrawal feeling distance and we can begin to bridge that distance and feel a greater and more authentic sense of belonging to community and that is very healing i mean this is just the most extraordinary interview for 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 me and um you, you know, you you just seem like the you seem like the nicest person in the world, Marianne. <laughs> I, I I wonder. You know, there is this sort of um, uh, theory which I'm sort of a, a little bit aware of. I think from I'm um, doing my research ahead of this um, ahead of this interview of of sort of post traumatic growth. So so this idea that people who've been through terrible trauma can can emerge with stronger values and 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 connections, and I suppose a better a better person. Um, and that, that feels a, a, a bit like what you're describing there, though you've described it uh, far more eloquently than, than I am. So my, my question is, do, do you feel that this horrible experience you had as a young woman um, has, has, made you a, has made you a better person in the end? I'll answer that question. I want to say one thing about post-traumatic growth, which is a really powerful, important concept and has made a difference in my own life. But when you've killed somebody, it doesn't feel right to say, oh, well, this was a terrible tragedy, but maybe I can grow from it. <laughs> 
it just feels a little self-serving, even though post-traumatic growth is, in fact, the goal of what I was describing. So the language is difficult. The words we use are difficult. Um, but as a concept, it's important. And in fact, that is what we strive to do. I would say for many years, my own growth was frozen because I was not living an authentic life. I was bound up in guilt and shame and fear and grief and sadness um, and faking it for most of the time. Do you still feel guilty? And, and, and if, if, if you do, um, how, how does that guilt look now compared to how it looked before? Yeah. Um, yes, I do still feel guilty. I do think of Brian every day, and I would not want it otherwise. There was a time when Brian's memory was kind of the punitive voice of conscience telling me how bad I am and how careless I am and how I hurt people and how I, I don't deserve happiness and I don't deserve joy and it was it was very harsh today uh, my memory of brian is one of you know sorrow for what might have been his family was lovely he probably would have been a wonderful man with you know children of his own by now and but it's not his memory is no longer this punitive voice. It's the reminder of how far I've come and what matters to me in life and to um, not fuck around, excuse my language, to to live my life with, like it makes a difference. Don't fuck around. Live your life like it makes a difference. You've been listening to Why Do I Feel with me, Nathan Filer. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes.